Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Bible Geek. Uh, that's the show where we try like heck to uh, figure out what the Bible means by your uh, penetrating questions and my evasive answers. Uh, the I think the uh, basic axiom of the show is probably known to everybody. Uh, I uh, approach the Bible as a critic in the academic sense. Uh, not one of these village atheist types who likes to show how bad the Bible is. No, I, I don't make value judgments like that as a scholar. It's not, uh, it's not our business, really. Uh, and uh, what, what I mean is a critic is one who looks at it critically to uh, try to discern what the text meant and why things contradict one another and uh, we can usually explain that it's not a matter of uh, stupid goofs by stupid writers I always bristle when I hear that from uh, from uh, in its positive form from uh, impatient unbelievers who just love to mock the Bible or on the other hand the fears of inerrantists who uh, think that if they didn't believe in inerrancy that's what they would be stuck with saying it was just a tissue of stupid stupidity and carelessness that's absurd too so just trying to understand the Bible as best we can and that's why I welcome input from believers non-believers and uh, any stripe of either one of them and anything else if you can think of it um, I want to mention the uh, sad passing of a writer who was a good friend of mine Richard L Tierney he was much interested in um, uh, small o occult subjects like astrology and so forth, though not a believer in them. But he also was extremely interested in Gnosticism, and he did a series of really terrific short stories in the sword and sorcery genre pioneered by Robert E. Howard. But instead of Conan, Dick Tierney's um, hero is Simon of Gitta, Simon the Sorcerer, of whom I make much in my serious studies. But uh, Dick stopped writing a few years ago, and I got his permission to continue the adventures of Simon, which I have done, uh, and uh, in the Flashing Swords anthologies that I've uh, continued from when Lynn Carter did them. And uh, he was really, a, Tierney and Carter are both uh, really amazing men, and uh, I love their writing. And I just, and I know some of you overlap with my uh, other listenership and uh, the Lovecraft geek and so on. So if you didn't know the bad news about Dick's departure, uh, now you do. I hate to be the bearer of such tidings, but it's better to know. He uh, lasted till he was 85. 
I could have used a couple of more decades out of him, though. Uh, okay, anyway. Oh, yeah, well, let me do a little shameless self-promotion. If you've committed the great sin, my friends, of uh, not having bought my recent books like Merely Christianity, A Systemic Theolo uh, Critique of Theology, or um, Judaizing Jesus, How New Testament Scholars um, Created the Ecumenical Golem, or, um, uh, what else? Uh, yeah, when Gospels Collide, Contradictions as Revelations. Uh, I'm working on uh, more, and uh, another one soon to come out. It will be um, The Gospels Behind the Gospels, which I think is going to be a real eye-opener. So, okay, let's get into your questions, and uh, there are plenty of them because they've been piling up, uh, and, and I, I owe you an explanation for that, and uh, the biggie is that I am, like, going crazy doing all manner of things, editing anthologies and uh, journals and so forth, but also, especially, I uh, have recently been on podcasts constantly hosted by other folks, and uh, which I love, um, Myth Vision and various other ones, uh, Gnostic Informant and so on. Uh, and uh, those are great. I get the same sort of satisfaction I do out of doing these, but it does kind of cut down on my uh, recording time for, for, for um, my own uh, podcasts. I just did one earlier today on uh, the Human Bible. That'll be up pretty soon. And then today, of course, the... Uh, the Bible Geek. So, how about some of them are questions? Uh, where where did they go? Here they are. This is from Brian Knott of Nazareth. I was listening to the most recent episode and heard a question about the association of Rosh Hashanah with the end of days. This jogged my memory of a prediction in 1988 by Edgar Wissenant, who published a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. I remember that book well. Uh, his target date was Rosh Hashanah of 1988, which, as I recall, was in late September or early October that year. I don't recall any of the 88 reasons in the book, but it did make some headway among the people in my rural Mississippi community. Ah, a fellow Mississippian. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm in North Carolina now, and I and I wasn't it was a North Carolinian, so it was sort of local stuff. I was on my way to becoming a skeptic at that time, and I remember it as the first instance of a failed end times prophecy within my lifetime. When you're literally awash in that kind of end times expectation and language, it was quite a significant occurrence that pushed me over the line. More than 30 years later, I can't fathom that there are still people who feverishly insist that the second coming or rapture or Armageddon will occur within their lifetime, many the same age as me or older. It's interesting to note that Whissonant was undeterred by his failed prediction. He went back to the drawing board, as many failed prophets do, and published a new book detailing why the end would come on Rosh Hashanah in 1989. Perhaps predictably, it didn't do as well as his first book. He followed this up with a handful of predictions of the end throughout the 1990s before finally passing away in 2001. Um, 
that that's the end of the observation. Why is it that these people continue to make this unbelievable mistake? Uh, because uh, since then, we've had like two attempts by uh, the late not-so-great Harold Camping. Uh, and uh, the last guy I would ever have expected to get into this kind of thing is a sour pussed uh, old uh, curmudgeon and a Calvinist. Uh, he, I believe he thought that if you were a Pentecostal speaking in tongues, you were demon-possessed. Uh, boy, this guy. Uh, for him to go out on this limb, uh, it, it just astonished me. And uh, it was um, it was kind of um, funny how he, I hate to use that word, but uh, remarkable, how he started almost still in the bounds of sanity. Camping said it would be, uh, oh, what the heck, what, what, what was it? It was something like 1990, I think. Uh, and he said, now, look, I know this is just my calculation. I could be wrong, but for what it's worth, and I am pretty persuaded of it, this is when Christ is going to come back. It didn't happen, so he then got to work again, and this time it was what, 2001, I think. Uh, nothing happened again. Uh, and uh, what, what does it take? I mean, this is a great example of those who don't learn the lessons of history or doomed to repeat them. I can only guess that, uh, I, in fact, I have a... Uh, uh, an essay on this uh, coming out on uh, in my Zarathustra Speaks column, which you can find on uh, my Patreon. It, it isn't up yet, but uh, soon will be. And also it'll be in the Christian New Age Quarterly. Uh, and I uh, think that it has to boil down to uh, just a simple lack of any historical perspective. Would any of these people have gotten involved so much? I mean, like with camping, people were emptying their bank accounts to buy billboards warning everybody to uh, repent by so-and-so date. Like, would any of them have gone to such lengths had they understood that this has happened time and again, loads of times, scores of times? I remember several, not not only this one in camping, but uh, other ones by uh, other people within my lifetime. And uh, it, it's just amazing. I just think, that, I mean, a, a lot of conservative Christians just have almost no idea of church history, right? They They know, I think it kind of starts for them with Billy Graham. And they know that Martin Luther was back there sometime. But I suspect they really know almost nothing about the history of Christianity, especially the history of embarrassments. And uh, if they did, you know, maybe they wouldn't be so quick to make fools of themselves. I always picture the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the apparent end of Jesus. Uh, and uh, Jesus incognito walks up to him and says, hey, wh why are you guys so glum? And he says, uh, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem uh, who doesn't know what uh, what happened there? No, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, we there was this prophet, mighty in word, indeed, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, and we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. 
which of course means to liberate it from Roman, Roman control in a context like that. And then Jesus says, you idiots, don't you recognize what scripture said had to happen? If the Messiah hadn't suffered and been executed, he'd have been a false Messiah. Um, that's only the darkness before the dawn. And then of course, before the day is out, they realize they've just been talking to the resurrected Jesus. It is a great story, right? But that's kind of what these people are all asking for. You can imagine what the two disciples on the road to Emmaus expected they would endure when they got home. Hey, it's Cleopas and so-and-so and Ralph. Uh, uh, what happened to that uh, Messiah you guys were following? I, I didn't notice. Uh, did, did the Battle of Armageddon happen uh, and I slept through it or something? <laughs> like they, they knew they were going to get it. Uh, and uh, that's you'd think that that's certainly what must have happened to these people who not only believed it, but made it fools of themselves telling others they ought to as well. Uh, I don't want to ridicule them. I have compassion. I just wish they wouldn't open themselves up to things like that. Like Pentecostals that say speaking in tongues is actually an inspired speaking a, a real foreign language that you never learned. Look, you're just making fools of yourselves. Uh, studies by linguists of glossolalic transcripts show that there's no linguistic structure. I mean, even if it, you were saying it's uh, it's like Ugaritic or some a Mayan language or something that we don't know the vocabulary of, you can still tell whether it's a language or not if, if it has a syntactical structure in it. But it doesn't. They don't need to make claims like that. Uh, you just They need to just see what speaking in tongues has always been. It's the language of angels. It's divine gibberish. Like you cannot express the the praise and glory you feel so you verbalize without saying anything except that the speech denotes the state you're in which is one of exaltation and ecstasy like you don't have to make these absurd easily debunked claims because you bring something quite legitimate into disrepute but that's enough sermonizing uh, by me for today this is from our pal, Dr. Barton, who still maintains he is not the Dr. Barton from The Creature Walks Among Us, but who knows? Um, <clears throat> I, I have met him a couple of times. He doesn't really look like he did in the movie, but whatever. In the Bible Geek um, uh, 21-017 podcast, at about 27 minutes, you mentioned that you believe that the original Ark was adorned with an image of Yahweh the, that the aniconic sort of Ark came with the Deuteronomic reforms. I believe that you are wrong in that supposition, but probably not for the reason that you might suspect. However many Arks there might have been, we know that Exodus and Deuteronomy describe not only two different Arks, but two different kinds of Arks. The one from Exodus is the popular one with the cherubim on top. I argue that this one is a later design and always intended to be was always intended to be aniconic or no no actual images despite the cherubim for reasons that I'll mention in a moment 
The one described in Deuteronomy 10 is the much simpler wooden box into which Moses put the fragments of the tablets of commandments. I side with uh, Tudor Parfit in his book Lost Ark, I guess it's a book, Lost Ark of the Covenant, that this older, more primitive ark was most likely a war drum announcing Yahweh's war commands in a booming, thunderous voice. As a drum, this might have had an image of Yahweh on the side, as with the uh, Gundestrup cauldron, but it would not have had a statue of Yahweh atop it. I believe that the Exodus Ark was also designed to be iconic, sort of. The description of the wings of the cherubim is fairly specific. If I interpret it correctly, then this leaves a more or less triangular space between the wings. We know that the ark was shown to the public once a year. The construction of the temple in Isaiah describes, I believe, uh, the Holy of Holies being built at the end of an east-facing passage. Although it isn't specified, I believe that this was when the sun was in a specific location so that it showed down the passage. Since the ark was at the other end of the passage, the sun shone through the wings of the cherubim. Uh, Through the rest of the year, the Holy of Holies was described uh, as arranged with a lantern behind the ark, again allowing light to shine through the wings. This ties into the idea that Yahweh was, as some point out, seen as a sun god. True enough. The sight of the sun or of a sacred lantern gleaming through the triangular arrangement of the cherubim wings was thus the Hebrew equivalent to the eye of Horus. Thus, the later Ark of the Covenant was physically iconic, but spirit, uh, I'm sorry, was physically an iconic, that is no image, no icon, but spiritually iconic. I believe that this is also the reason for the hand gesture used uh, during the uh, Berkus Kohanim, the very gesture from which Leonard Nimoy adapted the iconic Vulcan hand gesture on Star Trek. Uh, find a picture of this hand gesture and you can easily superimpose the split fingers on the wings of the cherubim. The Kohanim, the priests, during their blessing are invoking the eye of Yahweh on the congregation. And he includes a uh, a, a sort of a diagram of this, but you, you've seen Mr. Spock do this, right? It's uh, You got the thumb, then separated, you have the first two fingers, the index and middle, and then with the same separation, you've got the ring finger and the pinky, right? And when And you would put those together with the tips of the thumbs together and the tips of the index fingers together. And that's what the priest would do, raising his hands in that gesture when he says, uh, um, oh boy, what is it? Uh, May uh, the Lord shine his, oh boy, blanking out, you know, watch over you and bless you and so on. That could be, that is interesting. Uh, I do think you're dealing with two arcs, basically, the more modest one. Uh, and uh, where the Ark is not really the star of the show, but rather the fragments supposedly inside it. It's just a wooden box. Uh, but then there's the stationary Ark uh, that uh, had the huge cherubs shadowing the thing so you couldn't even see it. Uh, and uh, But then there is this description that's kind of halfway between the two, where it's a box with small 
uh, winged cherubs facing one another, or as some rabbis said, male and female cherubs having sex. Uh, boy, oh boy. Uh, let's see. Um, so uh, I... Uh, and then, of course, there's the thing that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has claimed to have as the Ark of the Covenant, but it's it's obviously, uh, it doesn't even fit the description. Um, but interesting possibility, uh, certainly to be considered. You know, this makes me uh, urge Dr. Barton yet again to finish up that darn book he's writing. He has an eagle eye for interesting possibilities in the text, and uh, some years ago he let me read what he had written of the manuscript, and it was quite fascinating. But he hasn't finished it yet. And I say he ought to before it uh, turns out the Harold Camping or Edgar Wissenant was right, and the end is coming next week. Uh, okay, uh, this from Stephen J. McDonough. Uh, there's a unique angle about the transmission of texts that doesn't get much attention in the digital age. Just how hard it is to copy things without the aid of a printing press. How much does our not having the writings of heretics come down to nobody taking the time to copy them? Did organizations like that, like, uh, the Catholic Church really have to work that hard to burn forbidden books? 99% of the time, wouldn't it be enough just not to copy them? How many heretics have the time and resources to hire rooms full of scribes to copy their work? Uh, hard to know. I'm sure you're quite right that uh, some of these books were seized and, they no, and the Gnostics no longer had master copies to work from. And, of course, uh, the ones that were seized were very likely burned. We're told that a lot of heretical texts were, were uh, used as kindling. And uh, I, I think they, they figured they'd be destroyed. In fact, we probably have the Nag Hammadi texts because uh, in uh, 365, I think, uh, Athanasius, the great... Uh, Constantinian bishop sent out an encyclical for Easter, and in it he said, here's the books we're going to use as the New Testament from now on, no others. And, uh, and so a copy of this encyclical, the circular letter, uh, arrived at the monastery of St. Pacomius in Chenoboskian or Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And they read this, and they had loads more books than that that they used. And they said, oh, you know what this means, don't you? The guy that brought this letter is going to make the circle again in a few weeks to inspect our library and make sure we don't have the, the forbidden texts. We're not burning them, though, guys. Uh, we are going to hide them away in a cave where they'll never find them. Uh, we, or at least somebody, will be able to find them there and read them. Of course, it took until 1945 for that to happen, but luckily it did. And uh, you can see why uh, the Orthodox bishops wanted them uh, burned. Not saying they were right to do so. Uh, it's just that you can see what an amazing variety of belief early Christianity encompassed which they were trying to stamp out. 
if, if you don't have any source for the doctrines, uh, nobody's going to be teaching the doctrines. Um, but it's but they're like uh, the Nag Hammadi texts do have uh, three copies of uh, the Apocryphon of John, one in a shorter version, two in the longer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, did they copy them? Well, probably. Uh, but uh, some of the Gnostics, the, the Heresiarchs, uh, the heads of the things like Valentinus, they were well-educated and probably wealthy, and so they could probably afford to uh, pay people to make various copies of them. And uh, Or uh, like Marcion. Marcionism flourished throughout the Mediterranean world, and, uh, they, and they, their canon was a single gospel and ten so-called Pauline epistles. Well, you know, they must have had loads of copies, but... Uh, it's a little tough to copy them once you've been killed, right? And they did stamp out Marcionism eventually. Uh, so, but you're right. It may, uh, you know, you'd have to ask why did they stop copy them, copying them? Might be just because they were impenetrably confusing, or uh, as I find some of them today, not being one of the Illuminati, or that uh, they were just too dull, uh, and they had to do triage and decide, look, we, we got limited resources here. We'll pick out a few that we'll copy. Who knows? But you're right. These physical uh, factors have to be brought in. Um, uh, oh, boy, what's his name? Um, one of the first computer uh, experts to... Uh, Oh, I can't believe it. I'm losing it. Uh, th someone pointed out that uh, that the uh, length of the Gospels is was determined by the, depending on which uh, standard size scroll they used. There was the standard longer form that uh, Matthew, Luke, and John used, but the standard shorter form that Mark used. Had he had a more paper, uh, he could have written a longer Gospel. But yeah, there are real-world uh, reasons for this. You, you're quite right, Jay. All right. Caden uh, Fox has uh, given us this in. He says, trying to figure out some various symbols, it struck me that Odin's crows are actually smart, while Athena's owls just look smart because of their gaze with those huge eyes. Of course, it might be because of those glasses they wear in commercials today. Anyway, but those eyes take up so much of the skull that the owls are really bird brains. Um, has, so what is it with snakes? They're... Oh, wait a minute. They're... They're generator? I'm not sure if this is the right word. Well, they're associated with evil and the satanic, but Jesus has words of praise in John 3.14, where he compares himself to the serpent Moses used as an imitative magic charm, or when he compares his followers to snakes in Matthew 10.16. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, remember, uh, G Moses is uh, holding the caduceus, the, the pole with the winding serpent or intertwined serpents uh, who uh, form an apotropaic device, just as you're saying, a magic thing that uh, it's imitative magic because it was he held it up and anyone who looked at it who had been snake bit would be recovered. So 
Here's a snake to negate the snake bite you already have. Hair the dog that bit me, Lloyd. Hair the dog that bit me. Uh, and, uh, and then Jesus says, um, uh, if the Son of Man uh, be lifted up, uh, he will draw all men to himself as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and so on. Well, okay, that's a reference back. Originally, this was the god Nehushtan worshipped in the temple. But when they were getting, when they were uh, streamlining the pantheon and kicked uh, Nehushtan to the curb, they they kept the the uh, the caduceus in the temple, but said, "Oh, it's a uh, it's just a uh, commemoration of when Moses uh, used a apatry." Device. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's exactly like the Saturday Night Live skit with uh, uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, it's like an, an adjunct scene, a deleted scene from the, uh, the great movie, uh, The Ten Commandments. Here is uh, Rob Schneider playing Edward G. Robinson playing Dathan, uh, one of the subversive complainers, right? Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days, and, and Dathan is saying to the people, uh, look, uh, well, this Moses guy has been gone uh, 40 days. We'll never see him again, uh, see? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's start uh, worshiping this calf, see? Uh, and, uh, and then suddenly, who walks around the side of the mountain peak but Moses? Uh, and uh, boy, what timing. And he, he says, what is this? And uh, you've created an idol? And uh, Dathan says, uh, no, no, Moses, it's, uh, it's just a parade float. Yeah, that's it. And Moses said, the Lord God has said nothing concerning parade floats. It's great. Well, that's kind of what they did with the Nehushtan statue. Oh, uh, it's, it's not an idol. No, no, it's just a commemorative statue. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, nonetheless, Jesus is going... Um, with the uh, you know the official reinterpreted version, he says, "Well, I'm going to be like the serpent, and whoever looks at me in faith will be saved." Uh, and uh, I have a sneaking hunch that goes back to Gnosticism because there were these groups like the the uh, the Naasenes and the Ophites who believed that the serpent of uh, Eden was really uh, Christ. Uh, in another form, bringing wisdom to uh, Adam and Eve, who, who were being deceived by the Creator. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, depending on where you're standing, the serpent, as he is in many cultures, is a symbol of wisdom and enlightenment. Uh, don't get me started on Kundalini Yoga. Uh, let's see here. Uh, but, um, and the wisest serpents... That, but uh, innocent as doves, of course, that's a reference back to Eden, too, because it says the serpent was the subtlest or wisest of all the creatures. Uh, so this isn't really a value judgment, but he's saying, of course, there's nothing wrong with having wisdom and subtlety. You ought to have that. But unlike, say, uh, which by that time they were associating with the serpent of Eden. Uh, don't uh, be wicked. Have the innocence of doves. You can combine them, wisdom and innocence. Uh, look at Jesus, for example. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it depends on where you're standing. That goes for dragons, too, in different countries' mythologies. They could be a symbol of uh, prosperity and well-being or a symbol of evil and nastiness. Oh, let's see. Uh, then to continue here, he says, 
if you know someone concrete, please correct my guess. I'm thinking Arthur Conan Doyle guessed it, right? I am a brain, Watson. The rest of me is a mere appendix. Uh, the snakes have reduced themselves to the brain and spine, shedding digits and limbs to be but minds devoid of bodies, and yet they move. I know Genesis presents this as a curse, but as someone who has handled snakes, <laughs> can I get a witness? Oh, sorry. It doesn't feel like they're cursed as they glide effortlessly out of my grasping hands, use, using what appear to my primitive mind to be nothing but sheer force of will. Even if my educated mind knows it to be powerful muscles, just like other animals. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, Caden, who is as wise as a fox... Uh, is uh, is is basically right. I mean, there the uh, idea of this snake as the symbol of uh, of wisdom does show up all over the world. Quetzalcoatl, Nehushtan, Leviathan, and uh, and so on and so on. The seraphim, who were divine beings of sn winged snakes, and so on. Uh, so. Um, yeah, it, it can go either way. It does go both ways, depending on where you're reading, both in the Bible and the broader history of religion. Um, I don't know if anybody made that connection that they're only a brain. That would be interesting to, to know, though. Uh, some snakes had legs at some point because you can still see a vestigial virgin, a version of them kind of uh, compacted into the trunk. Uh, but um, apparently they lost legs because they didn't need them. They were so long and sinewy and sinuous, they could get along even better without them. Indeed. Um, this is... Okay, oh, Caden again. Okay, let's hear him. Having listened to years of the Bible Geek, I'm taking it as a given that nobody is going to translate a hidden pun into the Bible, so I'm not suggesting that Shakespeare's name is hidden in Psalm 46. What's that? Well, of course, uh, he's referring to the fact that some have noted that uh, shake appears at the beginning of the psalm and spear at the end. Now, could that be coincidence? Uh, yeah. Uh, I am also taking it for granted that people will generally have an agenda-driven an agenda-driven translation process. This isn't always nefarious. Your own translation in the pre-Nicene New Testament was to help the reader find new meaning in what was likely to be a familiar text. But in the purpose-driven life, the authors seemed to go translation shopping to find the ones that supported whatever point he was making in that chapter. Yeah, you're not kidding. That that really amazed me when I read that. It was like uh, he he, uh, he used translations that hardly deserved the name. Uh, I mean, as if they were paraphrased in order to be used in books like his. I mean, beyond the living Bible, even. Yeah. Okay, so back to Shakespeare. What role did he play in translation or with the translators? At any rate, at the time of the writing of Macbeth, his patron is King James. In that play, Macduff describes himself as one untimely ripped from his mother's womb. Uh, the biblical phrase, one untimely born, brings to mind less violent imagery, like 20-somethings on Instagram dressing like it's 1941, 
Macduff gives a fairly good translation of how Paul seems to be presenting himself. Um, hmm, interesting. Uh, I originally thought I was seeing the conflict of Peter and Paul played out as Macbeth and Macduff and as a mirror of the Catholic-Protestant conflict going on uh, at the time, but not only does that seem a far stretch the more I think about it, that hinges on the more important question of Macduff's unnatural entering of this world. A small background note, if you're not aware, uh, a surface reading of the Greek parts of Macbeth makes Shakespeare look ignorant. The weird sisters call Hecate their master. Uh, Macbeth calls Hecate a he, and the meter makes clear that heck ate is what Shakespeare is having people say, not heck ate a, like normal. But not only is gender uh, expression such a huge theme in Macbeth, Shakespeare writes the dialogue between Lord and Lady Macbeth such that Lady Macbeth uses true iambic pentameter while her husband's lines have an extra syllable, making them a feminized form of iambic pentameter. Shakespeare may or may not have known Greek, but it seems he knew exactly what he was doing with his non-standard pronunciation of the moon deity's name and deliberate, uncorrected misgendering. All of the weird sisters themselves, uh, after all, of the weird sisters themselves, uh, says... You should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. Whew. I remember one day when I was a pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Montclair, we had a visiting lady who had a full beard. I was sort of taken aback, but tried not to show it. Uh, and I don't think she was trans. Right. Uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, this is quite interesting. Uh, did he not know who Hecate was? And uh, that could well be. I mean, he knew a lot of stuff. In fact, people have thought that he couldn't have written all these plays because it implied he was too much of a polymath. But yeah, that is mighty interesting. Uh, oh, okay. thanks, Caden. Um... Uh, this is Mar uh, Matt Thompson. I was recently in a discussion with someone about Paul's persecution of the early Christians. He claimed that Paul was following the Jewish law by persecuting the early Christians because they were blasphemers who were preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. This leads to three questions. Firstly, do we have any reason to think that the early church had a high Christology? Presumably, their Christology was at least no higher than Paul's. Secondly, would Paul actually have been following the Jewish law by persecuting the early Christians if they had had a high Christology? Lastly, if the early Christians had a low Christology, could Paul have been said to have been following the Jewish law by persecuting them? Many thanks from my Celtic outpost of the biblical geek di Bible geek diaspora. Um, well, uh, the story of Paul persecuting Christians in Acts seems to be a reaction to what Stephen is said to have been preaching, which is not all that different from what uh, the author 
shows us him saying in his long uh, sermon, so-called. Uh, and it, well, Stephen gets stoned to death for uh, blasphemy because he seems to be saying that God never wanted there to be a temple. And he's thinking of some of the uh, anti-temple things implicit in the Deuteronomic history, like when Solomon is dedicating the temple and says, uh, the heaven of heavens cannot, that is the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. Or when uh, God says to David, who proposes building him a, a stationary um, a temple instead of the portable Ark of the Covenant, uh, and God says to him, what, you're going to build me a house? Uh, what do I need that for? Uh, I'm going to build you a house in the sense of a dynasty. And so there's this uh, this idea that, that pops up occasionally that some devout Jews thought was a big mistake to have a, a temple, and Stephen seems to equate it with being no better than an idol. And, uh, of course, now what he doesn't say this, but uh, his preaching is described by those who have heard it earlier, uh, whether accurately or not, as saying he claims that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the laws given by Moses. Oh, um, is that, I mean, that's obviously another version of the charge brought against Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Uh, this guy says he's going to destroy the temple. Uh, and it's said to be a false prophecy there, though in the Gospel of John, he does say it. So that's a mixed up mess. But you have to assume that, that Saul in Acts at that point, who witnesses uh Stephen stoning and acts as the coat check boy for those who are uh, uh, lobbing the stones at poor Steve, uh, he must have accepted, I mean, just as a literary character, we, we must assume that he accepts the description of Stephen's accusers. And so uh, if, if he thinks that the that Jesus, who's already a pretty iffy character in, in Jewish thought, is going to come back and that he's going to destroy the temple and and destroy the or abrogate or something the mosaic laws uh that would be uh blasphemous enough i think to uh because it wasn't like uh, jeremiah where he says i hate to tell you guys this but the temple is going to be destroyed by the babylonians thanks to your failing to keep god's covenant no if they're saying that stephen was saying jesus is going to come and destroy this dump right and uh, and and the laws my gosh you know that's oh no 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 that that this guy's uh, got to go he's He's really a deceiver of Israel. And, uh, of course, he did go. We, we killed him, right? But this nut says that he's coming back to finish the job. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I can see that you might want to consider such a person a false prophet. And what does Deuteronomy say you're supposed to do with false prophets? Kill them. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is even a prediction, right? So it would fit the kind of prophecy Deuteronomy says is wait and see and if it doesn't come to pass kill him he's so he's pretending to speak in the name of Yahweh but he's not 
Now, it's another problem as to whether Saul would actually have had the authority to go outside of the Holy Land to persecute people. Uh, and uh, it, it seems not that the Sanhedrin did not have authority beyond the bounds of Israel or Palestine or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, when you look at uh, other at, at epistolary references where Paul says, yeah, boy, I was the chief of sinners. I was the worst of the lot because I persecuted the church. As um, J.C. O'Neill pointed out, it looks kind of like those are interpolations, uh, but based on grammar and interruption of continuity and so on. And, and O'Neill was not some sort of, you know, hyper-critical nut. He was a very orthodox, conservative churchman, but he, he didn't let that stand in the way of his being uh, pretty critical textually. And it, it seems to me, personally, you've probably heard me say this before, that uh, what the origin of the idea that Paul perse persecuted the true faith and those who held it, uh, meaning he persecuted Jews, I'm sorry, as, as a Jew, he persecuted Christians. I think that that arose from an earlier complaint of Jewish Christians who were referring to Paul saying the law is abrogated. Uh, you, you don't have to keep it anymore because it's not what saves. It's faith in Christ that saves. Uh, well, we know Ebionites and others did think Paul was virtually the Antichrist for saying such things. And, uh, and, but what would have happened? Like, okay, uh, would Paul have persecuted them? Or don't they simply mean he is opposing the truth? He is contravening and contradicting it in his, his uh, preaching, which is sort of a scenario implied in Galatians, right? Uh, Paul says to the Galatians, hey, what happened to you people? I thought we got this straight, that uh, it was faith that saves. D did you receive the Spirit because you were good at keeping the Torah? I don't think so. What happened? Uh, and uh, he says, if you submit to circumcision, you're cutting yourself off from more than your foreskin. You're cutting yourself off from Christ. Don't do it. Uh, and uh, and why is Paul saying this? Because reports have reached him that uh, people, uh, representative of James the Just in Jerusalem, are dogging his heels, following him into his churches once he's left and saying, you know, uh, there's a P.S. Uh, there's something Paul didn't tell you. I'm afraid his grasp on the true gospel is a little shaky. In fact, you do have to be circumcised to, to become a Christian. And so I think that's what was going on. This Paul is persecuting, opposing, warring against the, the true faith of Torah Christianity. I don't think he was actually killing anybody, nor were they saying so. But later on, uh, anti-Paulinists began to interpret it more invidiously to say, oh, that Paul, I'm going to no good. He was actually persecuting Christians, killing them. No, no, wait a minute. What does he say in 2 Corinthians? We wage wars using the weapons of the Spirit. Well, that, that's, you can easily see how if that's his approach and he used 
lingo like that, it would be easy to distort it or to misconstrue it unintentionally, and it looks like they did. But once that had happened, uh, I think you had counter-slanders between those who esteemed Paul their figurehead and those who idolized Peter. The, the Petrine Christians were saying, you don't want to follow that villain Paul. He persecuted Christians. Uh, who knows what he's really up to now? Just like in Acts, right? The Barnabas introduces him to the apostles, but everybody's afraid. Now this has got to be some kind of trick, right? Same thing. But the Pauline Christians use the rejoinder, oh yeah, you want to follow Peter, a guy who denied his faith in Christ not once but three times? He's bought a ticket to the inferno. Whoever denies me before men, the Son of Man will deny when he comes, etc. Uh, well, I don't think that happened either. Uh, I think these are both slanders, uh, nasty propaganda uh, from both sides. And uh, that's, uh, so that's where I think that came from. And it began getting inserted, the outright persecution business, in by scribes who were patronists, not Paulinists. But, of course, we can't prove it either way since we don't have copies uh, that early to, that might have lacked those things. Should I do one? Well, I guess I'll stop there for today. The next one is pretty long. But uh, sure enjoyed being with you on the Bible Geek today, and we'll do so again in the near future. So uh, remember to look into those books if you want, by, by yours truly, if you want enlightenment. Or further confusion, you know, whatever you uh, want to describe it. See you then. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.